politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Hello, friends and neighbors, countrymen and global citizens. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School today. It's uh, Tuesday, October 12th. Yesterday was what we used to call Columbus Day and now understand to be Indigenous Peoples Day. And so today, KPFK is going to celebrate for the first time in its history, what we call Original Nations Day. So we're going to have special programming for you to honor the original nations of Southern California and the Americas, challenging the idea that this hemisphere was discovered by Europeans and uh, made no contribution, I guess, to civilization until it was invaded and conquered by those who felt their idea of religion made them superior. So, beginning at 4 o'clock this afternoon until 8 o'clock, we will do that with English language programming and from 8 in the evening till midnight in Spanish. Original Nations Day on KPFK in tribute to yesterday's Indigenous Peoples Day. Also, I want to remind you that we are in the Fall Fun Drive here at KPFK and while... Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more about this at the end of the hour. I want to remind you that we're looking for sustainers to contribute just $5, 10 $15 a month. You don't have to dig deep and come up with $200 or $150. When you instead use the sustainers circle on the KPFK website, a 10 bucks a month is a really nice donation. That's 120 a year. And if you can up that to 15 or $20 a month, that's most appreciated. You'll help pick up the slack for those who've been listening for years and years to this radio station without making a contribution. And if you're not giving, you're not living. Giving is what life is really all about. If you're focused only on what you can acquire, you're really missing the point. And because of the nature of KPFK, when you support this radio station and its peace and social justice mission, you're really supporting all charities. And if that makes sense to you, then just point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate and look for Sustainer Circle. More on that later. Today, in lieu of a guest, I'm going to present part of a training that I did a few years ago here in Los Angeles on emotional intelligence this is a topic that I've always felt is central to understanding yourself better. It's the portal to a non-religious approach to spirituality. More than one-third of American adults now describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So while organized religion, church, mosque, synagogue, temple, may not be meeting your spiritual needs, you still feel that tug, you feel that longing, you feel that connection to life, to all living sentient beings, and indeed the mineral kingdom as well. That's spirituality, to recognize that 
everything touches every other thing and that separation is an illusion. The way you approach that is by learning to distinguish the intelligence of your emotional nature and what it says about you from classical intelligence, which is for the most part limited to the mental nature and tells you about the world around you. Thinking about yourself doesn't tell you any more than using your emotions to understand other people. <laughs> we need to get that straight. For the most part, sort of an 80-20, your emotions are personal responses. It's the essence of subjectivity. Our thoughts are the way we understand the world around us. And if we think about ourselves, it usually turns into a pretty critical exercise, a lot of self-loathing. So because the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School show here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock is a program about consciousness, we'll focus on that a lot. So I got a couple of segments for you from this class that I'm going to play, and then we'll talk a little more toward the end of the show about the opportunity to be a member of KPFK to support this mission with your donation. You can call 985-5735 in the 818 area code, 985-KPFK. Because of COVID, we've had to outsource our phone rooms, but someone will pick up. They'll be happy to take your pledge or donation, even if, uh, they, can, even if they can't listen to the radio station, depending on where they happen to be. But, you know, we actually get a larger percentage of your contribution when you use the website kpfk.org slash donate. Okay, it's that easy. And literally a couple of minutes, just go to Sustainer Circle and make your contribution. Set it up. It's so easy. You set it and forget it. $5 a month, my goodness, you're not going to miss that. $10 a month, that's a healthy contribution. And if you could do 15 or $20 a month, like... What's it cost for a couple of you to have a fast food lunch, right? 18, 20 bucks is a <laughs> cheap lunch for two people. Imagine once a month providing that goodwill donation to a great mission, the Pacific Commission for Peace and Social Justice through this radio station right here in Los Angeles, 61 years KPFK Los Angeles, non-commercial, listener-supported, you get to be a part of that. And as soon as your contribution surpasses $25 in a single calendar year, you become a voting member. You can vote for local station board. In fact, for those of you who have yet to vote for local station board, you just have a few more days. Deadline is the 15th, so be sure to fill out your ballot and participate in that election. Okay, so I'm going to keep this initial segment really, really short, and that gives us more time for programming. And so stay tuned. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. KPFK's Fall Fun Drive has begun. We know you tune in and make KPFK a part of your day. Help us reach our goal of $375,000 in just a few short weeks. Is that possible? Absolutely. But we need your help. KPFK is truly powered by you. 
please help us ensure that commercial-free, people-powered radio continues into the coming year by making your contribution now online at kpfk.org. Or you can call our call center at 818-985-5735, press 2, and it just takes a few short moments. Thank you for supporting KPFK, and know that you're participating in keeping free speech independent radio alive and well. We don't want to fall back. We want to move forward. And with your help, we can do it. So make your contribution today by pledging your support for KPFK. Welcome back. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK out of Los Angeles. And as promised, Here's the first of a couple of segments from an emotional intelligence training I did a few years ago here in L.A. called Emotional Identity. think you're going to like it. Happiness is not a goal. Love is not a goal. Truth is not a goal. Peace is not a goal. They are the way. In the anti-war movement, as far back as the 60s, We learn to say, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. If you believe there's a way to peace, then we can stay the course. We just haven't killed enough people yet to create peace. Somebody's buying that. I just want love in my life. Or a little peace of mind. I want some truth. Give me some truth. These are not goals or destinations. They are the way, the Tao, the Dharma, the the Christos, I am the way and the light. The means, the path to a destination that we never really arrive at. Except in the most mystical of coming homes. Where you all, like the prodigal son, go back. So, you know, why is there injustice? Why are there car accidents? Why do we have to hurt? You know, there's still lots of... How about just to get your attention? You know, the first seminar I ever did... No, that's not true. I was doing seminars before that. First seminar I ever did in Glendale was not here. I used to do a series of seminars at the uh, Chamber of Commerce. I thought, if I'm going to teach mysticism in the middle of Glendale, I might as well do it at the chamber, right? Uh, It's a pretty good idea. And then we moved to the Red Cross. Why not? And the first part, the first words of that first seminar was a quotation from Buckminster Fuller where he says, your life does not belong to you. You know how kids will say, it's my life, like I'll do what I want. No, it's not. We're responsible for it, but it's on loan. It's a gift. This my, I mean mine, this self, we didn't do squat to get here. A lot of people will tell you about their life-changing near-death experience. For me, it was coming off a motorcycle at 80 miles an hour. Rocket boy. And time stops. It's like, oh, look. There's no motorcycle under me anymore. 
I'm flying through space and I'm dead. Because you don't survive things like this. Oh, I had lots of time to think about it. It was probably like a, a fraction of one second, you know, but it seemed like forever. And uh, afterwards, after surviving somehow, not only the fall, but the five trucks that were behind me, I went home and meditated. Like, where's the gift in this, boss? <laughs> you know, besides the fact I didn't die, and it really didn't break anything, uh, I did discover I was allergic to pavement, moving at high rates of speed, road rash. But what higher self said in the meditation, the gift, is life is a gift. Well, I thought about that for the rest of the day. And the next day, did another meditation and said to myself, What's that mean? <laughs> Life is a gift. What am I supposed to do with the gift? And higher self said, give it away. That's what we're here to do is to give, to support each other. But we've also been granted will, a free will. And we can be willful and choose to design a life that's about whatever we want it to be about. Okay, But life, if you will, has its own agenda. So when we don't pay attention and we get off base or off the mark or off track, life has a way of nudging us back on track, maybe with a little touch of a feather. And we go, what was that? So life gives you a little gentle push. And you react to that and ignore it because you're very busy. So life looks around, finds a pointed stick, jabs you in the butt. And you go, ow! Damn life. Why won't it leave me alone? Why does this have to happen? And then we ignore it. Because we're very important people. We're very busy. We have places to go and people to see and things to do. And Why else would I drive 90 miles an hour down the freeway? I'm a very important person. Of course, I don't know who I am, but I'm going to convince whoever I think I might be that I'm very important. You know, the truth is, spiritually, we are essential. But materially, we're not that important as opposed to everybody else. So life finds a brick, clubs you over the head with it, throws you off your motorcycle, gives you cancer, whatever, takes your vision away. And when you lose the physical vision, there's another eye that comes on, isn't there? So you start seeing things you never saw before. And so we find that the curse, the adversity, always is a blessing in disguise, but it's your job to find the blessing. Okay, to get over that victimness of why me, to where's the gift in this? You guys know the story that, uh, that this used to be Ronald Reagan's favorite joke, but it's funny anyway. It's about the optimistic boy and the pessimistic boy, and if you know it, shh, don't wreck it. Yeah. 
supposedly at a study at UCLA, and they put the pessimistic boy in a room full of all brand new toys, still in the boxes, trains and boats and planes and wind-up things and motorized things and, and all, uh, all kinds of boy toys. The pessimist. The optimistic boy they put in a room full of horse manure. And they leave them there for two hours. And they come back after a two-hour period, and they go into the room where the pessimistic boy is playing with all these toys, this mountain of brand-new toys, and half of them are broken and smashed. And he's sitting in the middle of the room crying that they're the wrong toys. He wants other toys. These are not the good toys. And so they go down the hall to where the optimistic boy has been left in the room full of horse manure. (laughs) This kid's having the best time. He's like digging through the horse manure. He's piling it up. He's making little manure castles, you know, and buildings and moats. And he's digging through it and having the best time. And they said, what are you doing? And the optimistic boy said, are you kidding? With this much horse shit, there's got to be a pony in here someplace. <laughs> so, there's always a silver lining. The bad stuff in this world is an appearance, plus what we allow. Do you remember John Denver and George Burns in the first Oh God film? Don't even bother to look at the second. But the first one is pure genius. And John Denver, who's a grocery store bag boy, has been named the Messiah, He has to announce the coming of God to earth, and George Burns is God. Works for me. It's a good image. And at one point, they meet in a bathroom, and John Denver says to God, if you are a loving and merciful God, as you proclaim, then why do you allow this suffering, this war, this hunger, this gross injustice. And you know George Burns, the, the genius of comedic timing that he was, waits just long enough. I mean, the timing is just superb before saying in character as God, why do I allow it? See? Why do I allow it? Religious or not, God didn't give us hunger and war and poverty. We did. That's our invention. We took a paradise and turned it into hell on earth. If you're worried about going to hell, give it up. You're already there. This is it. Our job is not to get out of here, but to bring heaven to earth. Thy will be done on earth. This is in the, this this idea of I got my ticket to paradise. Screw you, you're left behind. I'm going to write a book called the Left Behind series and make a million dollars off all you people that are afraid of being left behind.
the job, your job is not to get the hell out of here and go to heaven and reap your reward. It's to bring heaven to earth to redeem this hell that we have created by not paying attention to those little pokes in the fanny and saying, what's the lesson here? What's the opportunity for me to learn? And again, that's when the false self, the selfish self, is put aside and the higher self comes through. I'm here to give my life. To give my love, to give my kindness, to give my thoughtfulness. And that is no sacrifice. As you know, in our better moments, we know that's not a sacrifice. Oh, I'm too busy for that. But when you take the time, the rewards are so exquisite. It's like, well, why don't I spend more time giving and doing for others? And less time concerned with my selfish self. Some part of us forgets. Incarnation is often called in mysticism the great forgetting. Isn't it funny how when you sit in a class like this or hear a lecture or go to the Bodhi tree and buy a new book, so much of what you're learning feels like remembering? Does that happen to you already today? Some vague sense that, oh yeah, I knew that. Once, very, very long time ago, I knew that, okay? And this idea of the two selves, a false self that identifies with the physical, mortal, temporary, temporal being, largely for the purpose of survival, and a true self, a higher self, an authentic self, pondering that can help you with a lot of these contradictions. And a lot of the madness that we put ourselves through when we talk about self-interest or self-conscious. Isn't it funny how words evolve? Self-conscious for centuries meant to be conscious of your existence, to be conscious of yourself. Now self-conscious means worried about what other people think of you. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Okay. Difference does it make what other people think of you? It could only matter if you didn't know who you are. It's a core mystical concept of the one and the many. This is referred to in ancient uh, Hermetic philosophy, Egyptian philosophy, for example, the second rubric or law of the Emerald Tablet was as above, so below. As it is above, it is below, and as it is below, so it is above. That this world is a reflection of spirit, that everything is spirit. Remember last week we talked about spirit and matter and Einstein's energy and mass, that there's only two forms here. So traditionally, spirit has been thought of as unitive absolutely inclusive to the exclusion of no thing for, and let's use the word religious people use, God, or the word philosophers use, the absolute, or the creator, or the one thing. So the Egyptians also talked about the one thing or the one life. 
as a totality. If something existed outside of God or the absolute, then God would not be much of a God. You see? So you have to start with a definition of God, not as a man on the cloud, but as the totality of all things, the one thing. It's a little confusing because the word one has multiple meanings, like most words. There is the separative one. This one is opposed to that one. Oh, there's another one. But there's also a unitive meaning of the one, often capitalized in the spiritual sense, which is the totality to the exclusion of no other thing. And that's just where you start. Again, what kind of God would God be? What kind of absolute? I mean, would absolute be if there was something else? You see? So that's sort of where you start. But the one manifests itself as the many. It incarnates. The problem we have, in, especially in the West, is we think of God as a being separate and remote, not the totality of things. Usually an old white guy with a beard on a cloud. But don't you see how that makes God very far away and remote? When the mystics say, like the Sufi saying, God is closer than your own breath. I mean, we are God. I told this story the other day in the radio. It, it was a remarkable experience I had just a few months ago watching one of my cats who found a little sliver of sunshine coming through the, the drapes in the morning and did one of those cat stretches, you know, where they, uh, and they yawn and they stretch and do their little cat yoga. Suddenly... One of those epiphanies, one of those ahas, I got it. Not that this is the end of anything, but I had an aha. God did not create the cat. God is that cat. That is the catness of God. God has qualities of cat that need to manifest as cats. Little tabby cats, bigger cats, Siegfried and Roy cats. And God needs to be dogs and whales and dolphins. And God needs to be the wind and the sun and the weeping willow tree and every other kind of tree. And the fern and the moss and the rocks and the oceans. And it's not like religion would have us believe that God's over here like Merlin with a wand creating these things. And what the mystical traditions that stand above all religions, embracing the religion, but from a much more inclusive point of view say is that there is but one thing at work here and it's not that God creates these separated objects outside of itself but is these things even manufactured things you know this bag how could this not be part of the one life how could anything exist that's not part of the totality of things? So, as rich and wonderful as traditional religion is, and it is, 
There's a lot of nonsense in religion, but there's a lot of truth and beauty in religion. It's a necessary stepping stone. It's grade school. It's grade school for people who don't have the time or the inclination to sit and study, to dedicate that much of their lives to it. That there, there are a handful of core beliefs that really transcend religion, that form this body, this global body of work known as mysticism. And this is one of the key principles, that God is not a separative thing, but the totality of all that is, and clearly not a gender. <laughs> if God could not be less than all that is, then God is goddess. But again, it's absurd. It's blasphemy. It's idolatry. To think of God as one gender or the other, as gender, as a human, you know. And it may be cute to say God is a woman, God is a black person. God is not a person, God is not a thing. But our brains have a hard time getting around that. See, the brain is like a filter to help us deal with three dimensions of space and time. And as you know, for example, if you've ever done a psychedelic and your brain gets blown open, you'll find out that those rules of space and time, uh, <laughs> there's more going on than that. See? But that's what the brain does. It filters us so that we can deal with the here and now. Okay, And so it's a nice allegory. I'm glad, you know, Mickey Angelo painted that ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's, I understand it's beautiful. I've seen the picture. Probably necessary for the times we've come through, but the idea of the divine source of all things as a man, as a white guy reaching out from some other place to touch you, another remote and separated being, and of course bad, because Eve ate the apple and all of that. I mean, it's just absurd. But we have to evolve to the point that we can understand that. And this is challenging, even for you bright people, to even, you know, to, to, to try to find the words. It's difficult. Uh, and then there are, there are other principles. For example, mysticism is, includes in all cultures and all times the idea that the soul overshadows. That, that the soul is born in heaven, your soul's already in heaven. You wonder why mystics have been killed, and tortured, you know, burned at the stake for all of these years. Um, a lot of it is this idea that your soul's already in heaven. That sort of sort of wrecks their game because the only reason for church, temple, synagogue to exist besides worship and fellowship, which ought to be enough, is to get your soul to heaven. What if you knew it was already there? That sort of wrecks their game. So they're going to come and kill you. Eight million women. The Holocaust. Of the witch burnings. That you never hear about. Eight million women burned at the stake as witches, as if there's something demonic about being a witch. Wiccans don't even believe in evil. Christians do. 
<laughs> and of course, as long as they're going to burn you at the stake, we might as well take your house and your property and put men in charge of midwifery and poultices and herbs. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. All of the gross injustices in the world, largely the result, if you trace it back, daisy chain, cause, effect, cause, effect. The fear that comes from finding ourselves in these separate bodies, alone and alienated, and I am not you then. By all appearances, I am not you. And the truth is, we are the one thing, but from different points of view. Here's a Sufi allegory for you. And I'd love to dwell on this longer, but to go much further with this is to really go outside the preview of the class. But it's relevant. I love the Sufi allegory of ocean wave dewdrop. Where the ocean is the father aspect of the trinity. Trinities are found in all religions. Cause, effect, and the way. Okay, father, son, and matter, mater mother. Can't have women in there, so father, son, what do we call it? Mm, Holy Spirit, that'll do. It's dad and mom, and then the soul is born at the intersection of spirit and matter. The Sufis describe this as the father aspect, the oneness of God being the ocean, unlimited, unbounded ocean. And the soul is like the wave on the ocean that is individuated. Here I am, a wave going along through the ocean. Oh, look, there's another wave over there. Wave to the wave. Hi. But I am not that wave. I'm not this wave. I'm individuated. I have a unique point of view, but who's fooling who? I'm clearly the ocean. Right? (laughs) But then we get evaporated incarnated, we become the rain cloud, the raindrop, the dew drop, the mountain river, the inland lake, lose track of the ocean and think that's who we are. So the beauty of the soul between the one and the many, between spirit and matter, and the reason it couldn't exist outside of so-called Eden or heaven is that It's the group, the one, the group, the many. It is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. It's what Christ represents. It's what Buddha represents. Perfect love as fearless consciousness. Sharing the ground of God and yet able to extend itself into a separate form. Mysticism 101. It's good stuff. It's comforting to belong to a group. Even when you're out among strangers, the moment you spot someone else wearing your favorite team's ball cap or a sweatshirt from your alma mater, you sense an instant kinship. That's sort of what it feels like to be a KPFK member. Together, you, with other contributing listeners, make a real difference in keeping this service alive and well. When you run into fellow KPFK members, you know you share similar core values and a responsibility to support the programming you enjoy. Please, become part of this important group now. 
pledge securely online at kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735. KPFK, powered by the people. And we're back with the Mystery School on KPFK. Here's the second part of this segment from my class on emotional intelligence entitled Emotional Identity. Even real danger is less about the threat than what we don't know about the danger. If I have a poison snake here, remember Kill Bill 2, what was it? The Yeah. If I've got this deadly snake here and I go around trying to intimidate you guys with this snake, you know, I can generate some fear because the thing is dangerous. Until I get down here to the guy that raises snakes. Now, technically, the snake's bite is just as dangerous to the guy that raises them as anybody else. But he has much less fear because he's watching the snake. He knows its behavior, you see. So even in those rare instances when our fear is doesn't seem to be about things unknown, but is about danger, some real clear and present danger, I would argue that the bulk of that fear is still what you don't know about the danger. And the antidote, therefore, is understanding and if it's a matter of saying, well, maybe that's not always true, it's still true enough to, to be central to this training, which is, again, to know thyself, you must face your fear. And everything that hurts us, this is very key to this training, that everything that hurts emotionally or upsets us, every fear-based, so-called negative feeling, is a symptom of what we don't know about ourselves. And as you, you can prove this to yourself because as you use these altered states and the techniques you're learning here to discover that higher self and benefit from the elevated perspective of the higher self and you understand what you hadn't understood, the fear vaporizes and therefore the hurt and upset goes away. When you understand why it hurts, it stops hurting. But we've got to take ownership of it. Even if we follow that with empathy and say, oh, well, that's why the world hurts. That's why those people behave the way they do. But it's got to be in that order. It's got to be self-awareness and then empathy. It can't be judgment as a way of knowing self. I would go even further to not just optimism, but to an action of moving directly at the fear. That's so counterintuitive. Fear is like, yikes, I'm going this way. You know, To move at the fear is to recognize that what it represents are things unknown, and the only way to know it is to move into it. So if I move into what scares me, I understand it, and it ceases to be scary. It's just, I mean, it's... It's, it's just like the battle between like light and dark or hot and cold, which is not a battle. You know, light and dark, it's a key allegory. They're, light and dark are opposites only in terms of language. Light is a real thing. 
it's an energy. It has a source. It behaves according to law. It has a speed, 186,000 miles per second. Darkness, on the other hand, exists in a sense, but only as the absence of light. Darkness has no source. It doesn't come from any place. It doesn't go to any place. It doesn't behave according to any law. It has no speed. It has no quality. And yet darkness can scare the bejesus out of you. And that's what evil is. And that's what fear is. It seems substantial, but it's actually the absence of love and light and understanding. And so we are the light bearers. It's our job in a personal sense as well as a group and social sense to find those dark places within you and carry your light into them and redeem the darkness. Don't you see? Don't light, you know, all those injunctions about don't, don't hide your candle under a bushel. You don't curse the darkness. Light a damn candle, you know. We are the light we're looking for. We are the love that we're looking for. What? It's hilarious. You wonder why Buddha laughs. You know, one of the Buddhas is the laughing Buddha. And you say, well, what's so damn funny? You know, what's so damn funny? That we are what we're looking for. Even Voltaire, who remembers Candide searching the world for the unpardonable sin? You know, you look all around the world and then find out it's in your heart and your mind. And the love we're looking for, we've already got. Not only do you have it, you are it. Not too many people telling you that. This message is brought to you by a product that needs you to think of yourself as a helpless victim. So, <laughs> what are the chances? Okay. All right, I have an exercise. Thank you for that. Thank you for your good questions, and we'll have more opportunity, of course, uh, for these questions. I'm going to do a little exercise. This, this plays off of some of the language I used in our opening meditation today. The idea of looking at those mental distractions and what's so damned important about those thoughts that they need to intrude on your meditation and you realize that there's nothing really important, you know. So what's the nature of the distraction? Maybe some part of yourself doesn't want you to discover the truth of the self. I mean, you know, our resistance to meditation is something we really got to look at. I have a card I send out sometimes. It's got a person on the front in a yoga position, and it says practice meditation. And on the inside, it says beat sitting around doing nothing all day. I mean, what's our resistance to meditation? My private clients come back after a week or two and say, if they're honest, uh, no, I didn't practice at all. Not once. Mm, no, too busy. Oh, too busy. What am I asking for? 15 minutes once a day. Do the math. It's about one and one half percent of your life just for you. Sorry, too busy. Okay. 
But the truth is, I've meditated for 35, 40 years, and I'm still resistant. So let's get honest about it. What is the resistance to what? I want you to sit quietly, close your eyes, do nothing except imagine yourself in paradise. Oh, no, not that again. Don't make me... Don't make me do nothing and dream of paradise. I mean, come on. And yet we are resistant to doing it. Thoughts say, you haven't got time for this. We have very important things to do. We're very important people. We've got to hurry. We've got to rush. What about this? What about that? What about that? Blah, blah, blah. The mind talks faster than the, than the voice can talk. In fact, mind can give you six, eight, ten thoughts all at once. Buddhists call it monkey mind. You ever been to the monkey house in the zoo? Very familiar place. We have that going on in here. right? And we have an emotional version of that too. It's just not as obvious to us. So we have to account for our resistance. And I would suggest that you recognize that this kind of mental distraction or even the feeling that I'm way too busy to meditate for 10 minutes a day or even 20. We're not asking six hours like some Buddhist, uh, um, you know, training. A friend of mine goes to these Mount Baldy retreats. They get up at 2.15 in the morning, meditate from 3 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night. I would be. Except I snore. That was, then the Roshi hits you with the stick. Okay. 10, 15 minutes. What is our resistance? It's the ego. It's the false self saying, uh-oh. If he or she sits quietly, they're going to, and don't you love this word, realize. They're going to realize who they really are. And then I will cease to exist. See? So the ego is always fighting to dominate and to say, this is who you are, the character you play. You're doing a good job. You're BSing almost everybody. They think that's who you are. And, of course, to a large part, it is who you are, except when it gets fearful. And then the self gets freaked out, the false self wants to protect itself and get defensive. And innocent statements become insults and attacks. And then we get on the defensive. And angry people make us angry. And we react. Who are we defending? When you get defensive, who are you defending? And what makes you think that self even needs to be defended? Especially... I mean, who's most likely to hurt you and make you feel defensive? People you love the most. Oh, that makes perfect sense. People I love the most and who love me the most are, of course, the ones with whom I will be the most vulnerable and open to being hurt. But look at our willingness to project that on them. And you will do that in the moment. I can't turn you into Christ's or Buddha's. I haven't been able to do that for me. I've met some pretty enlightened women and men in my life. 
I haven't met a Christ or a Buddha. I can't do that. These skills in and of themselves don't do that. But what they do is allow us to approach that level of consciousness by radically reducing the amount of time it takes us to recover, to get it together, to take responsibility. I want to get to this exercise. I'm going to play some classical music, some Mozart And what I want you to do, and all I want you to do, I'll just play a few minutes of a little piece, is listen to it. Okay? In fact, I'll turn, once I get started here, I'll turn the lights off. You can, with your eyes open or your eyes closed, listen to about three minutes of Mr. Mozart. Okay? Who would like to volunteer to tell me what you were thinking about during that music. And just take your time and reflect on it. What were you thinking about? (laughs) Okay, how about in back? Now, I appreciate these answers. These are all wonderful answers. I saw, I saw, I felt... But my question was, what were you thinking about? Where'd Mozart get that stuff? <laughs> Good. Yes. There you go. I really appreciate the honesty. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. Mozart. And the mind goes, I'm sorry. I got some really important stuff. Uh, we haven't made dinner yet, you know. And, uh, oh, gee, on the way home, we got to drop that DVD off at Blockbuster. we got to remember to do that. I'll catch holy hell if I get home and I did. Okay. Oh, my God, my bills. Is it rent too? Oh, no, it's the 30th. Okay, 30 days past September. Meanwhile, Mozart wants to carry you to a transcendent place. Okay. Now, as I said last week, to tame the mind, you don't quiet the mind to meditate. You meditate to practice quieting the mind. We must be patient. You must want it. When you got on a bicycle at four or five or six years old, I'll bet you fell off a few times, skinned your knee, hurt yourself, but you got back on because you wanted it. It was freedom. Zoom zing. Zoom, especially when we were kids, you could go every place, any place, as long as you're home by dark. Nobody locked their doors. We could do that now. It's no different except the media. It really is. All these fears of child abuse, and they're going to kidnap your kids and, and rape your wife. and It's all BS. Crime is not any worse than ever. In fact, in in some areas, crime is down. Teenage pregnancy is way down, but you'd never know it to hear the religious right go on. So we've created a climate of fear. But uh, that's a tangent. I'm I'm off on the freedom of riding a bicycle. You've got to want this as much as you wanted to get on that bike. As much as you want, as I said last week, to train the dog to sit and stay. 
Sit, stay. The dog doesn't understand English. It responds to tone of voice. And um, a kind of rapport that I don't think we can really understand, the way animals see things. Okay. So you have to repeatedly sit, stay. I had a dog, lovely Rita. Lovely Rita. Got her right out of college. One of three golden retrievers I've owned. And lovely Rita, if you put a biscuit, she would sit, and you put a biscuit on her nose, she'd flip it up in the air and and eat it before, you know, bite, eat, swallow it. Well, I mean, chew it, but, you know, catch it. Thank you. <laughs> I need you in the front row. <laughs> These tough words. Uh, before it hit the ground, okay? And, uh, of course, love the fact that... Uh, uh, all the people around her seem to enjoy that as well. But I had to do that many, 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 many times. All right? Before she got it. Because initially she would tolerate this and then just drop it and pick it up. It was a, what's the point? Why wouldn't I do that? You know? What's this idiot Michael want from me? I know he's buying the biscuits, but still. And one day, she just grabbed it, and we made a big deal out of it. Most of you train your children the same way. Okay? If not punishment for bad behavior, certainly a reward for good behavior. Reward yourself for the good behavior of learning to suspend your monkey mind. The benefits are outrageous. You will find paradise... And then you will find yourself in paradise. As, as my partner Steve says, not only will you like the paradise you find in yourself, wait till you find the self you find in paradise. And besides being clever, that's just really, really true. So, let's play it again. Only this time, watch your mind... Try to distract you. Watch it. Don't resist it. Resistance makes it worse. Did I mention that? <laughs> resistance makes... You damn thoughts. Oh, kick your butt if you don't. You start thinking about not thinking. Now, Alan, Alan Watts has a funny bit about as soon as you get clear... You know, there are qualities of meditation where you completely empty the mind. It's called contemplation mystical contemplation. And Alan, uh, in one of his uh, uh, lectures, uh, says, you know, the funny thing about that is as soon as you're able for the first time to allow yourself to create that condition where there are no thoughts, what happens? A thought jumps in and says, we did it! Far out! Aren't you proud of yourself? And now we're off to thinking. The thinking part taking credit for you not thinking. The ego taking credit for the soul. Remember we talked about Rajneesh and, and how the ego can dress up like a soul. You know, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Little Red Riding Hood. The wolf would get right into Grandma's bed. Oh, what big teeth you have. It's not the soul. 
The ego composes the soul. Well, how would you know? You develop your ability to discern the difference. Okay? And the quality of thinking that the soul does is not the same. Again, what are we after here? We're after qualities of meditation that calm the emotion. It's one reason Baroque music is such good music to use. <sighs> to quiet the waters. This is Christ walking on water. You know even if you float on your back in water, that's a relaxation skill. If you're floating on your back and your left leg sinks, it's because your left leg is picking up tension. Let go and it floats right back up. Well, now you know how to walk on water. You just keep practicing and practicing. And Peter Sellers did it. Calm the emotional nature and the mind becomes quiet. But there's something left. There's an awareness. A picture. This guy's picture was Ireland and he's dancing through Ireland and Michelle had a picture. Okay? Or maybe you're not visual. It's just auditory. It's the notes or the music seem so rich that they, they stream out of the speaker as if in colors and, and textures like a tapestry that you can touch. And it has then a kinesthetic quality to it, just a kind of a feeling. So here's what I want you to do this time. And I'm going to say it this way deliberately. Don't resist thinking. Don't resist feeling. Let it go. And put your attention back on the music. And let the music have its way with you. Let the music have its way with you. It won't hurt you. It's not going to do any permanent damage. Surrender. Die to the music. Die to Wolfgang. Amadeus. Mozart. Hope you enjoyed that from a class I did a few years ago. Six-week class. It was like 18 hours altogether on emotional intelligence. Thanks for joining us today for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles. Remember to make your pledge during the fall fund drive. Simply point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. Look for a sustainer circle and make your contribution of $10, $15, $20 a month. Even 10 bucks a month, which anyone can afford. Heck, $5 a month is a way of making a contribution. Anybody can contribute $5 a month, and we appreciate that. If you can make it 10 or $15 a month or more, depending on the dictates of your conscience, all the better. Support what supports you. Listener-sponsored, progressive, free speech radio for all of Southern California and the world at kpfk.org. Thanks so much. Talk to you next week. We're here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock with the Mystery School. Keep in mind, we're podcast to all podcatchers. We post to YouTube, and we stream on demand at theagelesswisdom.com. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK. KPFK.